Well, we've just uh, finished the Thanksgiving season, and of course, uh, many of us are uh, gearing up for the Christmas season. Uh, And chances are, uh, over the past couple weeks, uh, you've spent some time with some family, and if you haven't gotten a chance to spend some time with family over Thanksgiving, uh, I'm sure you will uh, get a chance to spend some time with family over Christmas. And uh, the truth is, for some of us, uh, spending time with family is wonderful. For some of us, spending time with family is difficult for a myriad of different reasons. And for all of us, it's probably both at the same time. Uh, There are challenges and there are beautiful times as well. Often the actual experience doesn't necessarily match uh, the nostalgic expectation we often have uh, during the holidays, but for better or worse, many of us spend a lot of time with family over uh, the holidays. And so we're, we're reminded, like it or not, that all of us are products of families, Products of parents, products of siblings, uh, and those uh, families influence us and shape us into who we are. They're, of course, not the only shaping influence in our lives. There's lots of other influencers, but certainly uh, families tend to have that huge determining factor into who we are, probably the most influential in shaping us. I'm reminded of that as I look at my kids. There's, there's so much that I observe in my kids that uh, I, I see in myself as well, often more the flaws than the good parts. Uh, in many ways, kids uh, put up a mirror to who we are and to our character as well. And so they remind us that, that families have an incredible culture-shaping influence on who we are. And it's not just parents and siblings. There's aunts, there's grandparents, there's brothers, there's sisters, there's things like birth order. All those things are sort of the cultural soup in which we all grow up in and shape us into who we are. And often those things visit generation after generation in weird ways as well. Uh, One of my daughters uh, has a personality that is exactly like her great-grandmother, even though the two of them never met. And sometimes those generational things tend to happen in really weird and bizarre ways. But where we come from matters. Uh, It matters profoundly. It affects who we are. It affects where we're going. And this is a time of year during the holidays that we start to think about family things and and the family shaping influence they all, all have on us as well. But it's also the Advent season. And so when we come to the Advent season, we think of not just our own families, but we think of Jesus's family as well and the circumstances of his own arrival. Now, we know that Jesus' birth was unique. As the creed tells us, uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, So his birth was miraculous from start to finish. But one of the things we also recognize is very practically that Jesus was born into a family. He was born into a family culture. He had a mother, uh, he had a father, he had siblings, there were issues of birth order that were there. Uh, He probably had a a crazy aunt or a crazy uncle uh, that everybody told stories about. Um, He had brothers and sisters. Can you imagine, I've often thought about this, can you imagine being the younger sibling of Jesus Christ where your mother and father say, why can't you be more like your older brother? And of course, your best answer back is, well, I can't, mom and dad, because he was God, right? So there was all these family dynamics in Jesus's life and in his family. He grew up in a family. And uh, two of the gospel writers find it very important to talk about Jesus's family throughout the generations. 
And those gospel writers are the writer, of, uh, the writer Matthew and the writer Luke. And Luke uh, talks about Jesus' family in Luke chapter 3. He talks about it in the form of a genealogy, a family tree, if you will. And what he does is he starts with the birth of Jesus Christ and he works all the way back to Adam. He really does his homework. He works all the way back to Adam, the first man. But then when you come to Matthew's genealogy, uh, which is in Matthew chapter 1, he begins with Abraham, which is really appropriate for Matthew. Matthew was writing to uh, a Jewish audience. And so he begins with Abraham and he works his way forward all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now his genealogy is a little bit different than Luke's. Uh, Luke talks about it more in terms of fathers and sons. And Matthew does this as well, but what Matthew does is unique. He includes four specific women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is just read a part of that genealogy and, and highlight really the women that he talks about. So I'm going to be reading Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to skip down and read verse 17. So listen to, to Matthew's gospel, the way he starts this out. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nation. And Nation, the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And now skipping down to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We recognize that it is full of details like this. And sometimes we wonder, what is the significance of all these details? But obviously they are significant if they're included in your word. So help us to understand your word. Send your spirit to illumine our hearts to see what it means to the message of the gospel and what it means to us specifically. So be with us now as we meditate on your word. May your spirit open our, the eyes of our heart to your truth. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. I don't know if you caught it, but there were four women who were mentioned in this genealogy, four mothers of Jesus Christ. The first is Tamar. You see her in verse three. Uh, in verse five, you hear about Rahab and you hear about Ruth. And then once you get to verse six, you hear about the wife of Uriah, and we learn that her name is Bathsheba. And so this Advent season, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the stories of these important women, these mothers of Jesus Christ, and then of course we're going to finish on Christmas Eve uh, by looking at Mary, the uh, immediate mother of Jesus Christ. But let me say at the beginning, be warned. 
be warned about these stories. These aren't necessarily uh, heartwarming, sweet holiday stories that we're going to read about. Uh, These are stories in many ways that are uh, full of lots of heartache, uh, often full of scandal, and all those things become very crystal clear uh, in the story of Tamar, which we're going to look at in a minute. But one of the things that I think we're going to find throughout this, a very practical takeaway from all of these stories that we're going to read is this. Jesus' family was a mess. His family was an absolute mess. But the good news is this, that he brings hope in the middle of messy lives. Jesus brings hope in the middle of messy lives. And so we start with Tamar. Now, if the story of Tamar was made into a movie, it would most certainly get an R rating. I'll tell you that from the very beginning. So as I tell you this story, I'm going to try to recap it in the best PG-13 language that I can, uh, because that's probably the best thing that we ought to do this morning. But if you're interested in reading the full account, then go to Genesis uh, 38. You'll get a full unedited version of the story of Tamar. But uh, it's all encapsulated for us in one chapter in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 is in the middle of a larger story. Uh, It's in the second half of the book of Genesis. You read this incredible story of Joseph, a young man uh, who God uses to do incredible things. But in the middle of Joseph's story, there is this almost excursus, this, this interruption in Genesis chapter 38 that tells us about the story of Judah and Tamar. The whole book of Genesis sets a bigger picture for us. It tells us the story of Abraham and how God enters into a relationship with Abraham, telling him, I'm going to grow your family into a great nation. And of course, he does all of those things. But as you look at God interacting with the story of Abraham and his family, it tells us a lot of things about what a relationship with God is really all about. It shows us a lot of things. Well, Abraham, this this patriarch of this family of God, Abraham has a great-grandson, and his great-grandson is named Judah. Judah, we learn, has 12 brothers, and these brothers are not necessarily the best-behaved of boys. And what we learn from the Joseph story is that uh, Judah and his brothers hate their brother Joseph. And so at one point, they hatch a plan to kill him. They eventually decide not to kill him. And instead, what they do is they sell him into slavery. They sell him into the Egyptian uh, lands as a, a slave into servitude. And God uses that later to do incredible things. But one of Joseph's older brother was a man named Judah. And when Genesis 38 opens up, what you learn is Judah decided, at least for a season in his life, to sort of turn his back on his family. Uh, He leaves his family and he takes up residence among the the Canaan Paganite, uh, the the, the pagan Canaanite people, uh, a foreign people that were all around God's family. And you get the sense that this was not living according to God's design, that this was not something that God wanted out of this family, but Judah decides to do it anyway. Um, And so what we find is that he turns his back on his family. He goes and lives with the Canaanite people. And it tells us that he sees a Canaanite woman, Shua's daughter, and he decides to take her and he sleeps with her. This unnamed Canaanite woman bears for Judah 
three sons. The oldest is called Ur, the second is called Onan, and the third is called Shelah. Those are the three sons that are born to Judah by this woman. When Ur, the oldest of the sons, I've thought about drawing a family tree to just keep track of it all. I had to do this when I was preparing. Uh, The oldest of those sons, Ur, when he comes of age, his father Judah decides to take a wife for him. So he goes amongst the Canaanite people, he selects a wife for his son Ur, and that woman is named Tamar. She takes center stage in the story. Well, in verse 7 of chapter 38, it tells us, after all this happened, after Ur was married to uh, Tamar, uh, it says very matter-of-factly in verse 7 that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord puts him to death. So that's the end of Ur, this older son. But that creates a tension within the family because in the ancient world, when a man died, his wife would then be given to the next sibling or the next oldest sibling. This was called the the Leverate uh, Law of Antiquity. And what it was intended to do was to preserve the dead brother's name and his family. And so the brother that would receive the, the older brother's widow would be responsible to supply an heir for his dead brother. And when uh, that dead brother's inheritance, it would wind up falling to the child of that union. And that was a really common practice in the ancient world. Except the tension in this story is that after Ur dies, Onan, his younger brother, was responsible to bring about an heir for his older brother, but he wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't want to follow these customs. He didn't want to follow the law of his day. He refused to provide an heir for his dead brother, so he refused to conceive a child through Tamar. Then the passage tells us that this also was wicked in God's sight. So what does God do? God puts Onan to death, okay? So Ur has been put to death. Onan has been put to death. And at this point, Judah, who's the father of these boys, begins to think that Tamar is the reason all this is happening. He begins to think that Tamar is cursed. So he goes to Tamar and says, when the oldest son comes of age, I will give you to him, but he has no intention of doing that at all. And so poor Tamar, in the midst of all of this, is rejected. She's probably considered to be unclean and cursed by the rest of her family. Uh, She's unable to produce a child, which was the sort of ultimate source of identity and value for a woman in the ancient world. And so she is sort of left as an outcast. She has no dignity. Her well-being has been violated, and she is uncertain about the rest of her life. And so she's an incredibly vulnerable position, And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. And this is where the story gets even more intense. She decides to disguise herself as a cult prostitute. And as she does this, she sleeps with Judah, her father-in-law. This is where the story gets a little crazy, I told you. But Judah has no idea whom he has slept with in this story. And so later, a few months uh, as it goes, a few months later, uh, uh, Tamar turns up pregnant 
and Judah is furious about this whole thing. He finds out that Tamar is pregnant, and so he sends for her to be burned alive in the public square as a picture of her indiscretion and a warning to everyone else that they shouldn't act the way Tamar has acted. But to his utter shock in a great reversal, he discovers that she is pregnant by him. And Judah is caught. He is guilty of all sorts of things on multiple fronts. And at the end of the story, he declares about Tamar that she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. So Tamar gets what she most wants, and she bears two sons to her father-in-law, and those sons' names are Perez and Zerah. And then the story ends. That's how the chapter ends in Genesis 38. There's very little moral judgment levied. Uh, There's very few value statements on what has been done. It seems like Judah is the one that is far more guilty than Tamar because she walks away being declared righteous. But very matter-of-factly, the story simply ends and moves on. No comment, no value statements, and we don't find out till very much later in Matthew's genealogy that Jesus Christ, the Savior, comes from Perez, the son of this very scandalous union between Judah and Tamar. So I'll go back to my very first point. Jesus' family is a mess. This story is messy and Jesus' family is messy. This is a story full of all sorts of immorality and guilt. It's a story full of double standards and guilt reversals. So it makes you wonder why on earth would Matthew choose to include this in his genealogy? Isn't this the kind of story that families like to sweep under the rug and not really talk about or ignore that this actually really happened? But that's not what Matthew does. It's right there at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And so what does the inclusion of this mean for us? What does this messy story remind us of? Well, it tells us this. It tells us that Jesus' family shows us something. It shows us that God is not repelled by our messiness, but instead he enters into it. Jesus isn't turned off by our messiness, but instead he enters into it, he redeems us, and he makes it into something beautiful. Friends, this is the very message of the Advent season. It's the message of the gospel itself but it's very counterintuitive to the way of our hearts and the way of the world around us. In many ways, it feels very backwards because the essence of man-made religion that we see all around us, the essence of man-made religion says this, that we need to clean ourselves up before we can come to God. In some systems, it's called uh, penance, in, in some system, it's called building or earning merit before God. In some worldviews, it's even called building karma. But in all of them, what it says is this, that we need to clean up our resume before we present ourselves to God. 
It is meritocracy in its essence. We are accepted based on our own stored merit. We make our good deeds outweigh our bad. And that is the system of the world around us. It's the default system of our hearts. And so we assume wrongly that God operates according to the same sort of system. But what the gospel shows us is that that God operates in a very different way. After all, at the end of the story, Tamar is declared righteous, and that should clue us into the fact that God operates on a different operating system. Because what the message of Christianity teaches us is this. It tells us that it's not first and foremost about cleaning ourselves up before a holy God, But instead, the essence of Christianity teaches us that God instead comes and he enters into our mess. God is the one that comes. He is the first mover and he is the one that steps into our mess. And so what becomes our responsibility in all this? Well, really it is twofold. One, it is to admit and own up to our mess And two, it is to welcome the king into our hearts and into our mess. And so the first step of all that is to really admit to who we truly are, to admit and own up to the mess, to recognize that at the end of the day, we will never become qualified or worthy for the grace of God. In fact, what we need to recognize is that the thing that qualifies us is admitting the very fact that we are not qualified for the grace and the goodness of God in our lives. And so we admit to the messiness of our lives. We admit to our own sinfulness that has estranged us from the goodness of God. We admit that we don't have it all together before a holy God. You see, Judah in our story was exposed for the mess that he was. He was caught in the middle of it. He he couldn't hide. He was exposed for everyone to see. He was caught in a web that he he had created, and that was right where God wanted him to be. Because at that moment, he was now ready to understand that all of this from start to finish, is about the grace of God and about the grace of God alone. This, of course, is true for us on an individual level, but it is also true for us on a corporate level because we get together as messy people each week in the context of community. We get together not to impress one another with our spirituality, but instead church should be the place where we remind ourselves of our messiness and the need for the gift of grace that we have in Jesus. Fleming Rutledge said this about the church community during the Advent season. He said this, In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all of the time. The disappointments, the brokenness, the suffering, and the pain that characterize this life in the present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. 
See, the friend, friends, the church is the place where we should most admit to our mess because the, the church is the only place that provides hope in the midst of our mess. And so the first step really is admission, but the second step is just as beautiful and just as simple. It is to welcome the king to welcome the king into our messiness, to recognize that all that we need is everything. And yet Jesus has come to provide everything for us. And so by faith, we welcome the king into our mess and he provides what we most need, grace that is deeper than we could ever imagine. You know, the story of Mary and Joseph, that is a story that deals with another unexpected and scandalous pregnancy. But in the midst of the mess of Mary and Joseph's story, they discovered the Savior of the world. The only hope they had in the messiness of their story and the only hope that you and I have for the messiness of our own lives. Let's pray.